you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We have been uh, in the book of Acts uh, for a few months, and then we took uh, about five weeks uh, in the month of August, and then last, last Sunday we spent in the book of Psalms doing some different, some different things. Now we're back, we're back at it. So if, uh, it, by way of just kind of simple review here on uh, what, what has previously transpired, we're not going to go all the way back to chapter 1, but just in chapter 7, we met a guy named Stephen, and Stephen was uh, one of the these maybe so-called deacons of Acts chapter 6, the guys that were appointed to care for the widows, you might remember that. And uh, Stephen preaches a sermon, and uh, it's not very well received, uh, so much uh, poorly received, that uh, they, they kill him. They, they martyr him. Uh, they take his life. He becomes the first Christian martyr, the first person after Jesus to, to die for preaching Jesus. And at the end of chapter, um, chapter 7, um, well, beginning of chapter 8, we should say, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Um, in, the, in the part where it talks about them stoning Stephen, we learn about this guy named Saul. And uh, it says that the people who were throwing the stones at Stephen laid their, their, their coats at the feet of a, of a man named Saul. And then we come into chapter 8, and we find out that Saul wasn't just uh, a guy kind of hanging around the scene. He, he actually was kind of a, a leader in all of this. Uh, not kind of a leader, he was kind of a big deal. He was uh, pretty, pretty active in persecution and leading the, the, the revolt or the, the, uh, the oppression uh, against Christians. And so we're, we're going to pick it up here in, in verse 1 of chapter 8. So just knowing that uh, persecution is beginning. Uh, we just have seen that the worst case of it so far of Stephen being, being murdered. And we come to chapter 8, verse 1. Um, and we read this, and, the, and Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men, uh, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. And Saul was raging uh, ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're asking that you would give us uh, eyes to see this morning, that you would help us to understand what, uh, what your word is uh, indicating here. What are the implications for us today? Uh, we want to know what, what is going on here and what it means for us. So God, we pray that you would help us uh, to, to see it. And I ask for your help even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 1 tells us that, that Saul is approving of the killing. And in verse 3, we find out that he is wreaking havoc on the church. He is uh, arresting Christians. He is putting them in prison. He is, he is actively going about this persecution. This isn't passive. This isn't if he sees somebody, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll get upset about him. Maybe he'll say something. Maybe he'll do something. No, he is, he's an active uh, persecutor, right? Um, we're going to see it again in chapter 9 as well. Uh, Luke is expressing to us that this was pretty intense. He wants to, to, for us to, to feel the weight 
of, of the, uh, the persecution that the church is, is facing. And the interesting thing, and we'll get to chapter 9, I'm going to keep alluding to this, but in contrast to what happens in chapter 9, so the intensity of the persecution and then the, the dramatic nature in which he comes to Christ, the, these two things are just juxtaposed in, in the scriptures, and we'll see it when we get, to, when we get there. But, but Saul and his story, and so most of us know that Saul, Saul converts to, to Christ. He comes to Christ in chapter 9. And, and here in chapter 8, we're seeing that he is, he is not a good guy. And then one chapter later, we're finding out that he's coming to Christ. And what, what that tells us, right, it tells us a lot of things, but, but it, it tells us uh, this, that Saul in his story demonstrates that there is not a soul in the world that is beyond the grace of God. That is, is, it's terribly important for us to, to see that. And we're, again, we're going to see it again in chapter 9 more clearly, but we need to make the point as we're talking about this guy uh, we, we talk about him. You see, we read our Bible, um, many of us read our Bible from right to left, meaning we, we already know what happened. So when we read these stories, we read about this guy named Saul, and we know that he's going to be converted. And so it, it, it's so amazing that this is where he was, and not too, too much longer, he's in a very different, very different place. Um, no one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, anyone who is apart from Christ is said to be dead spiritually. Right? We, we know that the scriptures say that. And so what that means is that there are no degrees of spiritual deadness. Right? So everyone apart from Christ is equally dead. So, so some people might seem like, well, maybe they're closer to becoming a Christian than another person. That's not actually true. That's not actually how that works. You either are a Christian or you are not a Christian. You either believe or you do not believe. Those are the two categories. Becoming really isn't a category. It is one or the other. You see, a young American unbeliever living in the Bible Belt of America is as spiritually dead as a middle-aged Arab living in Baghdad. They're both spiritually dead. They're both desperately in need of conversion. They're both desperately in need of God's grace, which is enough for both of them. It was enough for Saul, it's enough for you, it's enough for them. It's enough for your unbelieving coworker. It's enough for your neighbor who, who mocks the Bible. It's enough for your family member who doesn't understand your faith. It's enough for them. The scriptures proclaim that to us. They, they encourage us with that truth. Saul, the life of Saul does that for us. The good news is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Not for the healthy, but for the sick. As we look through this, uh, these verses here, verses 1 through 4, we see this cause and effect um, element related to the persecution. So we see that Stephen's martyrdom ignites a great persecution. Okay? So that leads to that. And then the persecution leads to a dispersion or a scattering of, of Christians. So that the church scatters out and ultimately to fulfill God's purpose, more on that later. But in that, in that scattering, we see that great evangelism is taking place, right? So great persecution leads to a great dispersion, and that great dispersion leads to great evangelism, right? See how that works? See how, how, how God is, is, is over all of that? John Stott says that the scattering of Christians was followed by the scattering of good seed of the gospel. 
That's what's happening there. Sometimes we can look at oppression or we can look at difficulty. Or we can look at things that don't seem to be going our way and say, what's going on? That doesn't seem like that's going to work. That seems like it's counterproductive to the plan. Things are going the opposite direction, it seems. And yet here we have this example of God's plan can't be stopped. Even persecution cannot stop God's plan. In fact, persecution is fulfilling God's plan here in Luke excuse me, Luke's telling us in Acts chapter 8. So this is super, super encouraging for us. It's super encouraging that though there is great evil, there is great problems in the world, God's mission will be and is being accomplished. You can know that. You can know that you're on the right side of this if you're a Christian. You can look at the world and say, man, it looks like Christians are losing. It looks like things are bad for us. It looks like things are, are hard for us. Well, they might be hard, but that doesn't mean that God's plan and his mission is not being accomplished. It absolutely is. In fact, the gospel shines brightest at the darkest times, in the darkest places. That's why where there's persecution in the world, Christianity is actually growing. Why? Because the gospel actually looks beautiful up against the darkness of sin. It's in places where, where there's so much freedom that everyone can believe whatever they want and there's no cost to believing anything that, that we have many nominal believers. In quotes. God is fulfilling his mission. And how is he doing it? We find out that, that he's, these, these people are scattered but what we don't find is, is what, what I would think when I hear that. If there were persecution in my life and it says that I scattered, I, I would think that that meant I'm going like into hiding, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hiding out. I'm, I'm running away. That is not what the Christians were doing. They actually were scattered out. They were moved out and they moved out preaching. <laughs> they, they left Jerusalem, but they left with the gospel, in verse 4, it uses this, this word preaching, and the word means to preach the gospel or to evangelize. But then if you look down in verse 5, it tells us this about Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to, Christ, proclaimed to them Christ. And that, that word, proclaim, is to announce or, as a herald. But in order for us to, to either, do either of these things, preach or proclaim, evangelize, whatever you want to call it, we actually have to know what we're talking about. Right? We actually have to know who Christ is. We actually have to know the word. You have to actually know the gospel. So I wonder if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel this morning? Or this week at work or wherever you go. If they were to say to you, what is the gospel? What, what, what might you say to that? Dr. Kara Powell of the Fuller Youth Institute was asked about the top reasons Teens leave church when they move out or go off to college. She said the number one reason in her research was that their view of the gospel is very truncated, a very truncated view of the gospel, meaning it's, it's, it's abbreviated or it's shortened or it's abridged. She continues, it's very similar to what one writer, uh, Dallas Willard, calls the gospel of sin management, where, where the gospel has been distilled to a do's and don'ts list. 
Part of what needs to be reframed in the gospel is the gospel as God's transforming us from the inside out. The gospel is not just something I say I believe. The gospel is not just something of, of do's and don'ts. The gospel is not just this general category. The gospel actually is something that God is doing. It's the work of God. Or John Piper puts it this way. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, only everlasting joy. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's how life is, is changed. That's how your outlook on life is changed. Not because everything gets better, but because you recognize that, that because of what Jesus has done, there is now no condemnation on you, and therefore, there's only joy for you. Listen, the, as bad as it's going to get for you is, is heaven. <laughs> yeah, amen, right? That for the Christian, truly, like this life, what's, what's the worst that's going to happen is that, that it ends and you go to heaven. The Christian's life should be, should be full of everlasting joy. But we must know that. We must not know, know, only know it on a, on a uh, PowerPoint slide or written down somewhere for you to read and agree with. You, you need to know it in, in your heart. You need to know it in your bones what the gospel is. That when you're confronted with it, when you are asked what it is, that you actually can say something. You see, the gospel and proclamation of the gospel is not just for the preacher. It's not just for the pastor or, or the missionary. We all are tasked with it. In fact, what we find is the ones who, who are scattered here in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Who were the those it wasn't the apostles. The apostles stayed in, in Jerusalem. They stayed in Jerusalem and cared for the church. Who scattered? It was the regular Christians. It was the everyday believer. It was us. And, and they went out, and they went out with the gospel. The indication is not that they were in any way vocational in this. They were, they were lay people, as we might say. But as they scattered, they spread out, and they spread out with the gospel. And here, here we're seeing how God is sovereign over all. He, he is sovereign over all things. Even in this scattering, he is sovereign over it, and he's working what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us, that he works all things together for good. So even this persecution, he is working together for good, for the spread of the gospel. Now we see that principle here, but the truth is that it is true in your life too. That God is using the difficulty, the suffering, the hardship. He's going to use all of that for good. Hear me, he's not saying it is good. There is a difference. Romans 8.28 is not saying all things are good. Not all things are good. Persecution is not good, but God uses it for good. It's a necessary distinction. It is, it is a distinction with a difference, and we need to understand it. But as they're being scattered out with the gospel, you, you might read that and think, um, man, that, I, this doesn't necessarily sound like some great strategy. It wasn't. 
No, no one sat down. The apostles didn't sit down and say, how can we reach the world for Christ? I know what we'll do. You know, they didn't have some great plan. Like, that's what we want to do now. Right? That's, what, that's what humans want to do. That's what Americans want to do. We want to strategize everything. How can, we, how can we make it this way and do this and yield this result and do whatever? You don't control that. I don't control that. God did this. This is how God is building his church. This doesn't mean we can't make plans, but the point is, is this, is if you would look at this, this isn't how you would do it. This is how you would spread the gospel, but this is how God did it. And what we're finding is that God has a better strategy than we have. And we might not think this is the most effective way to do it, and yet it was. Yet it was. It was individuals who naturally were pushed out of their, their area and or not naturally, they're by persecution they were pushed out of their area, and they naturally took with them what they believed, the gospel. And the same is true today. Christian, we are not called to huddle up and just talk to each other about the gospel. This is good, but this isn't it. This is not the end. This is a means. We come to hear from the word of the Lord and then go. This place is an embassy. It is not a kingdom. We are not building a kingdom of First Baptist Church. We come to hear the word of the Lord, and then as ambassadors, that's what Paul calls us, we leave to go into a foreign land with that message. That's what these people who scattered did. They received the word, and they went out, and they shared the word. They told the word. They did what Jesus said, go and make disciples. Wherever they went, wherever you go, Wherever you are now, that's where God has you. To do what? To make disciples. We are all sent by God, and we are to take with us the gospel, which is, Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation. And that's what we see Philip do. That's exactly what we see Philip do here in the next number of verses. Pick it up in verse 5. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip, again, Philip was, was a deacon. He's not an apostle. So when we saw Stephen and Philip doing signs and wonders, that's not normal. The apostles were doing that stuff, not the regular guys. So there, there was something special that God was doing in the lives of these two men, which is not necessarily reproducible. Later, he's called an evangelist. And next week, we're going to see part of that in uh, the rest of chapter 8. But here we're seeing him, him beginning to do evangelism in what verse 5 says, the city of Samaria. Or some of your Bibles might just say Samaria. We're not going to get into what, what that is or isn't. The point is Samaria. The point is that, that you should be, uh, you, your, your uh, mind should be sparking when you see Samaria. Because it should be reminding you about Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When Jesus said, you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. We're seeing the movement happen right before our eyes. Now, he went to Samaria. And so you might think, well, that's good. He's doing what he's told. But we should note that this would have taken uh, a bit of boldness, a bit of courage from uh, Philip. 
And the reason is, is because if you know, uh, or if you don't know, uh, Jews and Samaritans, uh, Samaritans did not get along. They didn't get along at all. They didn't like each other. Uh, they were even hostile towards each other. The, Ju- the Jews uh, thought the Samaritans were, were a half-breed, not only in their ethnicity, but in their religion. Throughout the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples not to go to Samaria, that they were to focus on the Israelites. And yet, Jesus himself goes to the woman at the well, Samaritan. Jesus himself tells a parable. And the good guy in the story isn't a Jew. He's the good Samaritan. what What is he saying? He's saying that the gospel needs to come to Samaria. The gospel is for the Samaritans. And Philip is following Jesus here as a pioneer missionary. There's no prejudice in, 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 in Philip here. He's not a Jew who's looking down his nose at the Samaritans. That's not what we see. We see no pro- prohibition on him going. We're seeing that the gospel is for all, and here he goes. And I want to just say we are so thankful for missionaries that we support and the missionaries that we don't support that go to, to places around the world to go to unreached people groups around the world and to proclaim the message of salvation. And we're so thankful for them. But the truth is that we need more. We need more people who are going into more places, especially unreached places. We need more pioneers who are willing to take the gospel where it hasn't been yet, where people haven't heard yet. In a few weeks, we're going to talk to you about a project that we're working on for Bible translation in, in the country of Chad, Africa. Um, and it's a place that, that is, is getting the Bible in their, their own language. They, they, they will be getting the, new, the Old Testament. We're going to help finish the Old Testament for them, uh, Lord willing. But we, we need more of that. We need more people committed for the gospel to all peoples. That is God's plan. That is the mission. And we need to join him in it. So as we see him, uh, Philip, going, um, he goes down into Samaria and he goes to proclaim uh, the gospel and he does that certainly by the power of God. And he preaches and he does signs and he does healings. And it ca- catches the attention of the people, as you would expect that it might catch the attention of the people. And, uh, and they start listening. They start paying attention to him. Um, it, it would probably be worth our time just to, to take a minute and just say this. Um, you might read that and say, okay, so there were healings. Uh, and there are apparently exorcisms happening here in the book of Acts. Uh, we don't necessarily see that today, do we? Uh, we don't see it here. Uh, our church doesn't do that, do they? <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, wh- why is that? So, some people think they're doing healing. Some people think they're doing exorcisms. But what, what, is, what is the deal with that? Now, we're not going to take a deep dive here, but, but here, let, let me just say it this way. Uh, Acts is an historical account of a particular time in the life of the church, which means it is not necessarily prescriptive as much as it is descriptive. So we understand that there was a uniqueness to what God was doing at this time and at this point in the life of the church. Now, it's not to say that there are not healings that that happen. There's not to say that that God does not free people from things. It does not mean that that there are not miracles that happen. But, But what it means is that Here in Acts, those were done for a very particular reason. They were done with a purpose. They were not an end in themselves. The the miracle wasn't the point. 
the sign wasn't the point. The sign was pointing to something. Right? It was a sign for something, not a sign in itself. Uh, and namely, the, the point was to establish the church. The church is beginning. And who are these people? And what is this gospel? And so they're establishing the church. They're establishing the apostles. They're, they're confirming this message of the gospel. And it did it. That's, it. It worked. What God used to establish the church did. But now the church is established. Now there are no more apostles. The confirmation of the gospel has already happened. That happened. It did it. They, all that works. So the need for those things, as far as what the purpose was for them originally, is not necessarily needed now. So we should not expect a one-to-one correlation between what occurred in the church then for that to occur now. That's the point. We're reading a historical accounts. It, it, it's not a recipe it's not a recipe for, for everything that the church should, should do. It's telling us of what and how the church began. And Christ was preached, and people heard, and people believed. And in verse 8, it says, so there was much joy in that city. I hope that brings joy to, to you too. And I hope that that would bring great joy to our city when we hear the gospel preached and people converted. And we find out about a little bit about that conversions or those professions in verses 9 through 13, we meet a na- man by the name of Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here's this guy. His name is Simon. Simon was a magician or a sorcerer. He was a false prophet. And we find that uh, these things, the scriptures, here's a cross-reference if you want to look it up, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, talk to us about, about who, who energizes such behavior. And it's Satan. Satan himself is energizing these sorts of things. Uh, Simon was a false prophet. How do we know that? Well, we know it for a couple of reasons. The, the one, namely, is that a, a, a true prophet directs praise and attention to God. That's what a true prophet does. The point is, he is not the point. <laughs> Don't look at me. Right? And that's not what Simon did. Simon said, look at me. L- look, look, at my, look at what I'm doing. P- and people did. People paid attention to him. It literally says that. They paid attention to him because of what he was doing. He was not um, a, a, a true prophet <clears throat> at all. But then, verse 12 tells us that, that then comes the gospel. Uh, then, then comes conversion. And, and people are paying attention to, to Philip when they're hearing the, the, the word of God preached and the miracles and the signs, and they believe, and they're baptized. Let's just take a pause there and just say this. Like, sometimes I'm afraid that we're prone to think that maybe the gospel isn't enough. That, man, those, those people, they need something. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know about me just telling them the gospel. That's going to work. They're pretty far from Christ, Right? And yet here Philip comes in and God uses him and they believe. And the gospel has power. The word of God is living and active. Right? How, did, how did you come to faith? You came to faith through the power of the gospel. Don't, don't doubt it. 
Don't, don't disbelieve that the gospel can save anyone. Again, to the person that you are thinking about even right now, the person you don't think will ever believe, the gospel has the power to change any heart. The gospel is for all. Verse 13 tells us that Simon actually uh, believes. At least this is what the verse says. Um, even Simon himself believed after, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now John Stott notes that the New Testament language does not always distinguish between believing and professing to believe. So you have a, a verse like this that says, and he believed. <clears throat> you also have a verse like John 3.16 that uses the word believe. It's the same word. And so, additionally, you have a verse like uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, that says, you believe that God is one, you do well. <clears throat> Even the demons believe. Well, when it says the demons believe, they're not saying that they're actually trusting Christ. They're saying there, there's some intellectual understanding of that there is a God, but that, that's not saving faith. So the New Testament doesn't always give us those distinctions. Uh, so when, when it says that Simon believes, we have to keep reading to, to discern what, what, what did that look like. Well, Simon was amazed, we see, by these signs. That gives us a little bit of a clue, doesn't it? That, that a magician, right, who amazed people is now amazed by the signs that, is going on, that are going on by, by Philip. Uh, he was he wanted, we're going to find, to, to replicate the power of the Spirit, uh, not, not, not in any way repent of his own sin. We'll get there in just a second. So verses 14 through 17, uh, Peter and John are sent. The apostles send Peter and John. So they're hearing about these Samaritans that are, that are being saved, they are being converted. And they say, we need to send the apostles to confirm this and to see that this is, this is the case. And uh, this marks the first time that the gospel had left Jerusalem. This is, this is a, an uh, inaugural event that the gospel is going out and, and the Samaritans are uh, believing. So uh, they, they uh, verse 15, so they came down and they prayed with them, and that is those who had, had believed, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, they had not, for he had, <clears throat> the Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received God's Spirit. So, so again, this is a, a, new, uh, a new stage in the, the movement of the church. This is a new piece, the gospel going out from Jerusalem, going to these Samaritans. So the apostles being included in this is important. They were there at Pentecost in chapter 2. They're here in Samaria in chapter 8. Peter will be in with uh, Cornelius in chapter 11, the first Gentile uh, convert. So th there's this sense of uh, the, the apostles being present at these, these stages. Now, I do, we, we ought to um, at least acknowledge this about the Spirit coming. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter talked about this Holy Spirit, he talked about that, that when they believed, the Spirit would come. And now here in chapter 8, what what Luke is writing is that they believed, but the Spirit had not come. And so it, it gives this indication that there were some who were saved, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That, that is what was going on. Now, there are some who read this, and they um, conclude that that is true. 
that you can be saved or that you are saved and that the coming of the Spirit is a second event. Uh, there's, there's a problem with that. that. That is not on the whole of the New Testament what is, what is taught. That is not the, the instruction that was originally given. So what is, what is it about that's different here? Why is there seemingly uh, a contradiction, if you will? Once again, it is very important that we recognize what's happening here. Acts 1 through 10 is a, a temporary transitional time in the life of the early church. It, it is not, again, it is not prescriptive. As we continue into the New Testament, we, we don't find a two-part event. We don't. We find a one-part. See, at conversion, let me just say it this way and try to connect the dots. At conversion, the Holy Spirit baptizes believers into the church becoming part of the body of Christ. That means now that we are part of God's body, therefore we are a temple of God. The temple of God is where the Spirit dwells. And since we have experienced, we experienced only one Spirit baptism, according to Ephesians 4, that baptism happens at salvation, then the Spirit must come at salvation. So, when you read this, what we ought not to conclude is that if you trust Jesus as your, your Savior, you need another event to have the Spirit come into your life. You need to be baptized by water or something like that. That is not what the Bible teaches. This is a very isolated event. It is an exception. It is not the norm. It is not true today for us. You can know this, that if you trust Jesus as your Savior even this day, the Holy Spirit comes to you. You are baptized by the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells you. The Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. You do not need a second event in order to receive the Spirit. This is an exception. Please understand that. Back to Simon. Simon was a magician. As a magician, he, he saw the, these, these uh, apostles, Peter and John, laying hands on and the Spirit coming. And he was very intrigued by that. Uh, remember, Simon, Simon was, uh, he, he liked the attention. He liked the power. And we find in verses 18 through 24 that Simon actually tries to buy the spiritual power. Look at it in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of, on of the apostles' hands, he'd offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want to get in on this. I've been doing magic, but man, this is even better. I can, I can have this power that, that I give people the Holy Spirit. Like, give me that power. That, that, that's called literally a, a power grab, right? That, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a guy who, who has no interest in the Spirit, no interest in, in Christ, no interest in salvation. He's interested in power. He is not interested in the giver of the power. He is interested in the gifts. And it's easy to see it in him. But friend, there are some today who are far more interested in what God can give them than in who he is. Salvation is not primarily about or only about what God can give us. It is about who he is. Salvation is about our surrender to him as king. And in response, that king gives to us life, those who need it most. But Peter responds, look at it in verse 20. <laughs> and Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you, could, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of, you, of yours. Pray to God that if it is possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. In other words, Peter is saying, Simon, you will go to hell with your money. Your money is no good here. You are in a damnable position if you think you can buy this. You're missing it. And it actually can cost you eternal life. Simon was attempting to turn spiritual into commercial, attempting to buy spiritual power. And from this point on, um, this, this became known as something. It became known as, as the term uh, simony. That's actually a term, and it means that. It means buying, trying to buy spiritual power. And Peter says, no, the, the Holy Spirit is not, it's not for sale. That's not how the Spirit works. No one can control the Spirit. In fact, you need to repent. In the book of Acts, when he talks about repentance, he's talking to unregenerate people. That's what, that's what repentance uh, is, is directed at in, in the book of Acts. It means to change your mind. It means to reverse. It means to turn from sin and towards, turn towards God. And Simon responds in verse 24, and he says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Okay, that's not repentance. That's get me out of this. That is not what repentance is. That's not owning anything. That's just saying, please don't let that be true. <laughs> please get me out of this. He wanted to escape, not pardon. Warren Wearsby says it this way, a sinner who wants the prayers of others but who will not pray himself is not going to enter the kingdom of God. We must pray. We must come to God. And what God tells us is if we confess, he will forgive. Simon was close to salvation, but he was not converted. Maybe there's some here who have yet to come to Christ. Maybe you've, you've been close. Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you've heard about this Jesus, but you've yet to turn from it. Maybe you hope that you won't perish. Maybe you hope that you'll be saved. But the scripture tells us that there is one way. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. To repent, Jesus says, to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is demonstrated. Repentance is not just something we say, it's a way that we live. Well, verse 25 concludes the story by saying this, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter and John head back, but as they go, they don't just roll back home, they, they go preaching. They continue the advance of the gospel to the, to the villages uh, of the Samaritans. Again, turn in your Bible back to chapter 1, verse 8, and look at it with me one more time. Uh, the book of Acts is the history of the church, uh, the beginnings of, of God's mission in, the, in, in this age, the advancement of the gospel. And a few months ago, we looked at Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that becomes the outline for the entire book of Acts. That's what we see. We see they're in Jerusalem. Now it's moving to, to Samaria. And then we're going to the end, ends, of the, ends of the earth. 
It, it, it keeps moving out. They're in the city. They're in their hometown first. And then they move out to the region, to the countryside. Then they move out to the, their, their foreigners, the, 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 the semi-foreign uh, Samaritans, these neighbors, but these hated neighbors. And then it moves to, to all people. It goes beyond those borders to all nations and all ethnicities. It's true today. Acts chapter eight, 7 was, was a bleak point with the martyrdom of Stephen, but here in chapter 8, we're reassured that God's mission is unstoppable. It will be accomplished. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Guess what? Philip isn't the only one responsible for the, for the accomplishment of the mission. Nor was Peter, nor was John, nor was Paul. We, too, carry the responsibility of sharing the good news. So the question then is this, is who are the people to whom you are called to advance the gospel? Who in your life needs to hear the gospel? Would you just take a moment, and for some of us, this is gonna be really easy. It's been sparking the whole time we've been talking about it. But think of one name. Now you might list 10 or 15, but think of one name of someone in your life, someone that you actually interact with, that you know does not know Jesus and they need to hear the gospel. If you have a pen and paper, you should write it down. There's something about writing it down that makes it a little more real. One name. They need to hear the good news. The good news that they Christ died for their sins. That God loves us because of Christ. That salvation is possible through his work. That as we repent and believe, we can know for certain that we are his. If you've got a name, would you bow your head with me? And uh, here's just a, a simple prayer. Some years ago, I heard a prayer like this, and uh, it's a helpful prayer. You can uh, just pray it to yourself, to the Lord <laughs> silently. God, would you give to me opportunities to share, wisdom to see, and courage to speak? Father, we know that the Apostle Paul even prayed for open doors, so we pray for the opportunity this morning. Father, we recognize there are times where we just miss it. Maybe it's after the fact we say, oh, God, give us wisdom to see it in the moment. And then finally, God, for many of us, give us the courage. Give us the, the spirit-filled boldness to speak out these words of life. Words that changed our lives. Words that could change others. Would you give to us the boldness to say those things? Oh God, we need it. We want you to be glorified. This mission, the gospel to the ends of the earth, is for your glory. We are for your glory. First Baptist Church is for your glory. May you be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.